Hello, everyone, and welcome to episode 43 of the Cognicast. Today's guest is Kevin Lina. Uh, I'm your host, Craig Andera. A couple things before we start. I'll mention again that if you happen to be in the Minneapolis, Minnesota area at the end of October, you can sign up for a free one-day datomic course with Cognitect Mike Nygaard. Uh, that's October 25th, 2013, and that'll be at DevJam Studios, and you can find them online at devjam.com slash event slash intro hyphen to hyphen datomic um, or exercise your favorite search engine. Um, the other thing is we would like to say thank you to our newest ClojureCon sponsors. Uh, Staples Innovation Group is a platinum sponsor. Eighth Light uh, is a lanyard sponsor and Puppet Labs is a silver sponsor. There is still time for you two to become a sponsor of the Closure Conj this year. You can go to www.closure-conj.org for more information. You'll see a sponsor link there. I think that's all we have for you today, so we will go on to this episode of the Cognicast. Well, uh, welcome, welcome, everybody. Today is Friday, August 30th in 2013. Welcome to the podcast. Today we are super thrilled to have the wonderful Kevin Lina with us. Uh, welcome to the show, Kevin. Hey, thanks for having me. Oh, absolutely. Uh, there is any number of uh, reasons to have you on. Uh, in fact, you sent me a list uh, before the show. You said, hey, we could talk about some of these things. And uh, looking at it, there's not a chance that we would be able to do them all justice. So, uh, you know, I, I can already tell that we're going to want to come back and talk to you again. And I'm sure in that time you will have done uh, many more interesting things because you have seem to have a habit of doing that. So uh, um, I'm super happy to have you on the show. Um, before we dive into any of those things, however, uh, I believe you have listened to the show once or twice. So you know that we ask our guests to provide us with a song that plays on the way in. Uh, so the, the most important question. Um, uh, I, I've been giving it a lot of thought and I'm going to go with uh, Kenichiwa by Robin. Okay, awesome. Uh, I, I always love it when our guests, so I'm kind of, you know, not very well-rounded. I like metal and rock and I don't listen to a whole lot else. Um, although lately I've been uh, noticing that my, as I put my whole music collection on cycle, and since I always have a copy of the songs that everybody picks, um, my my music as I work has been growing more and more diverse. So I, I think you've just added to that and I'm really, really happy about that. Nice. Um, so I just quickly at what, is that can you describe that that mu the song or that music or what oh. chose you to pick that? Yeah, um, well, mostly. So, so Robin is I don't know a lot about her, but uh, she's Swedish and she makes a lot of like sort of electronic-ish dance music um, that mostly I listen to when I go running. Mm -hmm. But when I get you know the stars aligned and I actually know what I want to do on a computer, I will turn that up. Okay. Uh, and crank it out. Cool. Well, I don't know if uh, I don't know what people will think of hearing me say this, but I have personally found that. Uh, <laughs> it's not like the type of music that I usually listen to, but I actually quite enjoy cranking dubstep when I'm coding. Like that's oh like, yeah, 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 yeah. That uh, also also is a thing. Um, Justice also a classic. It's you know run, running and coding are the, the two. Uh, a lot of music overlap for me mm. on that. Cool. Well, uh, let's uh, let's let's go back here for a second and um, and uh, g give an introduction to you. I mean, I think uh, a lot of people in the closure community are familiar with you through your work there and uh, you've done things like spoken at uh, closure conj but i wonder if you could uh, tell us a little bit about yourselves uh, yourself for anyone that hasn't met you yet uh sure yeah um so my name is kevin i live in uh, portland oregon and let's see I, so i guess i got into the closure community about i guess two years ago it was uh, right when closure script came out um you know before that i do a lot of like, data visualization work and a lot of that was on the web and i was sort of getting tired of uh, javascript so then when closure script came out uh, I really just dove into it, uh, which has worked out really well. Uh, but yeah, for work, I mean, I, I run a small consultancy and we do sort of more technical kind of stuff uh, in data visualization. So it's not so much like 
consumer-facing uh, advertising type stuff, but more of like what can we build to help people perform a certain task and like do their job. So a lot of like um, you know kind of monitoring applications and some like data analysis sort of things. But uh, it's, it's been a lot of fun because the clients are all these different kinds of fields. I mean, right now we have a big client that does like renewable energy work and we've done bioinformatics stuff. We've done like climate modeling, you know, kind of all over the board, um, which is a ton of fun. Mm-hmm. And your, uh, your company is Chemming Labs. Is that right? That's right. Uh, why don't you go ahead and throw the URL out there for people? Uh, so, so it's uh, chemminglabs.com, uh, K-E-M-I-N-G-L-A-B-S. Uh, okay. And it's, it's actually, so, so Chemming, uh, people have actually called a couple times and asked for, for like Dr. Chemming, uh, who is not a person, but it's, I guess I don't know if I want to give this away. It's, um, it's actually like a type joke. Uh, so are you familiar with like kerning? Uh, yes, yes. I okay, mean, so, vaguely, yeah. Yeah, so, so kerning is just the space between letters and uh, chemming is when the R and the N get too close. So, <laughs> uh, you know, I've had meetings with clients and if they're kind of like design savvy, um, sometimes they get it and then, you know, they, they kind of laugh about it. But if they're not design savvy, you know, it's a serious sounding enough name that, you know, you can have a nice enterprise conversation about whatever. That's great. I love it. That's fantastic. Um, yeah. So you mentioned, uh, you mentioned data visualization and I think, um, that's a really interesting topic to me because, um, a, for me, it's, it's a bit of a black art. Uh, I mean, I know that I'm not good at it. Um, but B just the way that my career at least has been going. And I think the way industry is going it seems like that is beginning to really rocket in importance. I think it's always been important. It's just that we've been able to skate by without being as good at it for now. But as the amount of data that a typical application has grown exponentially, it becomes uh, ever more important. D- does that kind of jibe with your view of how things have gone? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's funny. In the, the past couple of years, the field seems to have gotten like really hip. And so a lot of people are, you know, talking about sort of like data science and data visualization and all these kinds of things. Um, but, you know, I, I kind of think of it, you know, it's, it's almost, to me, it's almost like writing, right? So it's this sort of very broad skill that, you know, you, if you, you can't do it well, maybe you don't really appreciate. And a lot of times you don't even notice like that that's really the problem. But then if you can, if you see something that's really well written or you see a really good visualization that like takes some data and just makes it all clear, um, then it's really powerful and really compelling. And, you know, yeah, I think a lot of, a lot of people are kind of interested in it, but haven't really had a chance to like get going with it. And a lot of people ask, you know, ask me at, at conferences and stuff about how they can get into it or, or what they can do. And my, my attitude about it is I kind of like writing, you know, it, it's hard if you're like, how do you get into writing or how do you start writing? And really you have to have something that you're trying to communicate. Right. So something either, I mean, and not writing is about communication, right? So a lot of times, like if you're journaling or whatever, you know, you're just trying to work some problem out in your head. And I think data visualization is the same, the same kind of thing, right? Maybe you have all this data, and you don't really know exactly what you're looking for, but you can just use visual facilities to try and figure out sort of what's going on. And once you've done that, you you found something interesting, you can go through kind of a separate uh, track of using the same tools, but then to try and communicate that with other people, right? So trying to make some chart that tells a story, um, you know, makes a case for something. Yeah, that's really interesting. I like the analogy. Uh, so I guess, I mean, I, just thinking about this for me personally, again, I mean, that it feels like data visualization is this very, is this very broad thing. And yet you mentioned some tooling, uh, specifically ClojureScript, that brought you into, you know, kind of the circles that I tend to, to occupy these days. Um, was there anything about that journey that you're like, because because to me it feels like when I use Closure, one of the contrasts with the previous technologies I'd use is that it's really good at kind of you know getting in and kind of squishing around the data and reshaping it and doing this and doing that. Um, that just feels easier. Did, mm-hmm. Was was there anything about that journey for you where you know you you're like ah JavaScript whatever I like I think I'll try Closure Script and that's worked out well for you. Was there anything about the data visualization or data aspects of what to me seem like strengths that that was part of your experience yeah yeah there's definitely um a couple a couple parallels with that um you know just so so actually you know my background is in in physics um and i had played around with uh common list before when i was in school and just having like a REPL is actually really useful right because when when you're doing 
you know, it's useful for lots of programming tasks, but you know, when I'm doing data analysis or data exploration and you have some data set and you just kind of want to kick it around and like look at some things pretty quickly, it's nice to be able to just, you know, typing into the REPL and, and checking stuff out. Um, and then with, with ClojureScript, you know, the web is nice because it's just sort of become this de facto platform for putting stuff together, right? Like you can put graphics up relatively straightforward and like kind of get user interaction. And then when you make something, right, you can share with other people. Um, you know, I, I'm hesitant to say relatively easily, but like more easily than I've seen other things. Um, and, and so that's been a really nice thing because you can just kind of fire up a web browser and kick this stuff around uh, and start making things, interacting with them and stuff like that. And so that's really what got me into Clojure. But in going back to sort of the, the data piece, yeah, just a, for me at least, the functional programming uh, really, it, it just sort of clicks and makes sense. Uh, I always thought it was kind of funny that, you know, I think a lot of people will say like, oh, functional programming is really difficult or hard. Um, but I think it really is just the background that you have. Because coming from a mathematical background, it is pretty simple. You're like, okay, there are these functions and you like put stuff in and they give you something out. And like, that's the whole story. Mm -hmm. um, and and it much, makes plenty of sense for me anyway, to try and to get that and then start composing functions together and like looking at data and kind of making, you know, these different pipelines where you're taking some nasty data set and filtering and cleaning it up and stuff through a bunch of functions in this iterative process. Um, so that's, that's definitely been a strength of, of using Clojure for, for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I understand when people say it's difficult because for me, the difficult part was getting through the OO mindset uh, that I had. I'm just speaking for myself. It, that, it was kind of like unlearning that was the hard part, not learning the functional mindset. But of course, those are all mixed up together when you're, when you're going through the process. So having arrived at, I think, a similar place to you where it makes a lot of sense to just start with a data often in sort of stream format and, you know, just, oh, okay, well, let's take that stream and transform it and reduce it and filter it. And, you know, that feels very straightforward now, but it, it, right. didn't, it didn't for a long time. Well, it's funny because I feel like I've seen kind of the the dual of the problem that a lot of programmers have coming from from OO imperative stuff and trying to learn functional programming, which is trying to watch uh, people with uh, straight up mathematical backgrounds or people with physics backgrounds trying to learn programming uh, and trying to learn an imperative programming language specifically, right? Because you know the equal sign is usually the assignment operator, right? And it's not actual quality. So you show them they're like, okay, x equals x plus one, and then there's someone who just like came out of 10 years of studying math and they're like, okay, well that's wrong. Like <laughs> right. I can tell you that's wrong. Um, and, and so it, it's kind of funny seeing, seeing the opposite side because if you show them functional stuff, they're like, okay, yeah, you can like nest these functions and compose these functions and all this stuff. And that, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Human brains are, uh, are a very important part of our world. And I think one that we don't always think about as much as we should. Yeah. That's, that's probably always true. <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Um, well, you've you've been you have been quite the busy hacker. Uh, like I said, you sent me this pretty big list of um, stuff that you've been working on. I, I'm guessing, knowing you a little bit, that it's not even complete. But uh, there's a bunch of things on here. I don't. I wonder. Maybe we could just start with whatever uh, you are currently working on um, among these many threads that you are most excited about. Oh, well, so so this is a, a little background. So I think a lot of the stuff I sent you, um, I, I sort of decided to take a sabbatical for the summer uh, from like my day-to-day -day involvement with client work. So uh, I, got, I got invited by these guys who run this thing called Hacker School in, uh, in New York City uh, to come out and, and hang out with them. So I don't know, have you heard of this? Um, I'm this not really I, familiar with it, no, go ahead. Yeah, so I, I think David has done it as well. It, they've been around for like maybe two or three years, but the idea is it's just a, it's a school for people who wanna get better at programming. And um, you know, they, you, you can apply to it, and then if they accept you, then you get in for free, and it's like two or three months, and you just kind of hang out with all these people who want to get better at programming. And um, you know, when I, I was there for this latest summer batch in New York, there was like 60 or 70 people, and it was really interesting because you know, there were definitely a lot of people who had you know, just finished college and stuff like that, but there were also a lot of people who were older. There were even some people who had like been programming for 20 or 30 years, and they actually just wanted to like carve out some time and sit down and get better. Um, and I thought that was just like really cool. And so I think they, they had seen some conference talks that I gave or something like that. And so they invited me to come be a resident, which, um, you know, for all intents and purposes, I, I later figured out just meant like to show up and hang out with everyone mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of pair with them on their projects and talk to them about stuff and things like that. And um, so that's what I did for, for like 10 days uh, a month or two ago. 
and it was just like a ton of fun kind of seeing what everyone was working on. And so I was like, knowing that this was coming up, I was sort of like, oh, I might as well, you know, I think that's a good idea, like try and step back and try and get better. Um, and I'm sort of, I guess, fortunate enough with my work that I, I can do that and kind of take, you know, eight, like 80% time or like, I guess what Chaz has is like 100% time right? Uh, kind of thing. So to be able to take that and be like, okay, I'm going to step back um, and, and try and work on different things that I've been thinking about and really dive into some problems. And so I've been sort of full-time uh, bike shedding for the past like, two months, which has been a lot of fun. Hmm. Um, so I, I'm, I, I'm the, the hacker school sounds super interesting. Um, what, what was your experience there? Like, what did you, what did you learn? I mean, how, how was it? Can you describe, like, if I went to hacker school, what could I expect? Um, yeah. So, you know, it, it really was just like a bunch of really smart, excited people in a room. You know, it's like it's kind of the same appeal for me of like going to a conference, right? Is you just get to go and, and see all these people and you know, talk to them about what they're working on. I think they, they encourage a lot of students to pick projects for the, for the summer or for, for like the batch that they're in. Um, so there's some people who are working on longer term things, like if they're trying to do some open source stuff uh, or, or whatever. But there are also people who kind of just floated around and worked on whatever was cool. I mean, there was um, there was a guy that actually, so at Hacker School, they had like an Apple II. And I think I was talking with one of the students and he was saying like, yeah, we sold this Apple II. And then we realized like it wasn't actually a prop. Like you could actually turn it on and it worked. <laughs> and then they like, you know, got sidetracked for like two or three weeks and they ended up writing like a Lisp interpreter for the Apple II. But most of the difficulty of that was actually like getting the program onto the machine because you know you, I guess if you turn it off, it doesn't it doesn't have a hard disk or something, and so they have to. They found out you could like send programs to it via like an audio cable mm-hmm. um, and things like that. And so you know they, he was telling me about all the stuff, kind of showing me all all this cool things about how that worked. Um, you know there was another group that they were making like an implementation of the game of Risk, which I thought was really neat. So they they built you know, this server, and then you could register your server with them, and then their server would, like, ping your server and be like, okay, here's the state of the board, like, what's your move? Um, and then so they, they were trying to make this kind of platform so that everyone could build out little AIs to play Risk against each other. And then they had this whole, like, visualization thing going on, too, where you could see, like, the old games and then kind of play through them and what all the different computer players did and stuff like that. Um, you know, but it was kind of just all over the board. It's kind of things like that. And you know, sometimes I'd just sit down and I would, I mean, I would just show up in the morning and then people would come and find me and be like, Hey, I'm organizing. Can you like, tell me about what you think about this? Or, you know, Hey, I'm trying to get into closure. I'm looking into angular JS or whatever. Can you, um, you know, give a little seminar about that or do whatever. So it was just, you know, hanging out. Did you, fun, fun. did you learn anything? I mean, it was, was there anything oh, you came away with? Yeah, totally. I mean, it was, it was really fascinating for me. Like I, I always like, I mean, I, re- I really like kind of teaching, and so people, I mean, a lot of people, I was surprised, some people felt, I mean, I think are hesitant to ask about pairing or things like that, but I, I really found that it doesn't, it doesn't really matter, like, the relative skill levels of people who are pairing, or at least from a pedagogical standpoint, because, like, I learn a lot. Like, so I, I paired with this woman who, um, you know, had been programming for a couple months, and I just learned, like, so much about how she, like, approached problems, and then for me trying to convey like ideas so even you know doing like um a reduce or something over a list like trying trying to convey that and like kind of walk walk this person through that and then kind of seeing where she struggled uh and then things that she would try that you know like would never have thought of you know there's so much with pairing where um you know the other person just does something and you're like "Ah, that would have never occurred to me and that's like a really interesting way to think about this problem um that that's pretty useful so definitely, you know, a lot, a lot of stuff from that. Uh, it was also fun kind of seeing, you know, having done professional software development and working with professionals, going and working with people who, you know, had just gotten into it and maybe had all these ideas from reading like Hacker News or whatever, but then were also kind of missing huge, huge areas of knowledge of sort of like, um, uh, what was it called? Just like the sort of background knowledge that you pick up in industry that you might not learn in you know, in school or from reading like little blog posts about stuff. Sure. Uh, so it was kind of interesting, like, like the risk stuff was, it was kind of interesting because they had, the architecture was a really well thought out, right? They're like, we're going to have these servers and you can write your server in whatever language, you know, and it's all kind of decoupled and stuff. And it was really cool. But then like looking at the internals of their stuff, it was like, oh, you guys did like four things wrong, but they all like aligned in such a way that this thing actually worked out, you know, because you made the same mistakes on your one client or something like that. <laughs> right. Um, so it was, it was like really cool to kind of see stuff like that, uh, you know. And of course, people were like really uh, 
really bright and everyone's like very eager to, to kind of learn and, and see how to do stuff differently and things like that. So it was good. That sounds super cool. Yeah. Um, that sounds like a great experience. I love the Apple II because I started programming on an Apple II actually. And so I do remember the, you know, having an actual tape player. The yeah. One, the one, the old ones that looked like, uh, like it was like a rectangle and it had a handle. And if you, you know, it was big and heavy. Like if you swung it at somebody, you would do serious damage. And <laughs> having to have the audio cable and plugging it in and listening to those cassettes. So, man, you just took me way back. Um, oh, that's awesome. That sounds like a really, really cool experience. Yeah. Um, so I, I know that you've been, like you said, you've been able to give yourself time to do other things. I see that you have been um, working with uh, ZeroMQ and WebSockets a bit to kind of adapt them towards uh, core async. Oh, yeah. Yeah, so the, the timing on that was great because I was like, I'm going to take some time off to like bike shed. And then, you know, Rich and company are just like, oh, here's like a great new thing. I'm like, oh, what is this? Like, I got to check, check this out. Um, so, yeah, I mean, so both of those actually came out of, the, uh, I don't know if I want to, well, I might as well, so this is the ultimate, the ultimate bike shed, um, and or evidence that I've like totally lost my marbles, but for the past like four or five months, I've been doing a lot of research and thinking about a design for, um, like a dependency management system, AKA like a build tool, um, which, you know, it's just the, a terrible idea. Like you shouldn't go into making a build tool. Like it really doesn't, the world doesn't need another build tool, but anyway, um, I was, yeah, I was looking into this stuff, and so a lot of the, the core racing stuff when that came out, um, I, I started fitting into there, and so both of those projects came out of that. Um, so uh, the ZeroMQ is, you know, I, I haven't done a lot of work with it, but it's just this like, sort of message. It's kind of like really nice sockets, basically. Mm -hmm. And when I was making this, this uh, build tool, one of the design things that I wanted is that, I'm, you know, for all the problems that Make has, Make is really nice in that it's like very, it's language agnostic, right? It doesn't care what what language you're, you're doing stuff in. As long as you can build stuff out in a shell or something like that, um, then you can use Make. And I think that's a really good idea, and it's much nicer than all the other build tools I've kind of used in my day-to-day my -day sort of work life, which is all very language-specific, right? So there's like Line again, and you can do Clojure and Java stuff in there, you know, but we're doing all the stuff on the web stack, so we still have to do a lot of Ruby um, and, and things like that. And... You know, on some of our projects, we're like running like four different build tools, four different languages, and they all have their own like little file watcher and stuff like that. And you kind of step back and you're like, this is crazy. Um, and so ZeroMQ looked like a really interesting way to try and decouple those things, right? So instead of uh, trying to just launch commands on the shell, uh, to use ZeroMQ as sort of this first-class programmatic interface that you can hook things together with. And so I was building stuff out with that, and then when Coruscant came out, you know, I was like, oh, this is actually a really nice way to um, kind of expose ZeroMQ within a Clojure application because you want to be able to, you know, write blocking-looking code but not actually be blocking threads and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. So, so that's where that came from. And then uh, WebSockets was kind of kind of similar um, that you, know, you can get WebSockets from from Jetty, but the API that you have to deal with is all callback oriented. And so I was like, oh, let's see, you know, this is, this is what this is for, right? Like, I feel like, you know, everyone's talking about how you can make things much nicer using channels. And, and so that's just sort of been kind of an exploration in doing that. And um, for the most part, it has been really nice. I mean, especially since the coracing stuff is available for Clojure and ClojureScript, you write very kind of symmetric looking code. And for all intents and purposes, right, you're, you're writing application code that you know, it's communicating back and forth over channels and you don't have to be thinking about, um, you know, callbacks and whether stuff is on Clojure or ClojureScript and stuff like that, which is really nice. Hmm. So have you had a chance to use uh, CoreySync in Angular? I mean, you've got a couple libraries here. Have you put this stuff into an application yet? Um, think, yeah, I mean, so so there's the, the build tool, which has, you know, been kicking around for four or five months. I, I haven't released it yet. I mean, maybe it'll be out by the time this podcast comes out, but um, that it's, it's being used in there. And it's, it's working out really well. I mean, stuff is, is just coming along. Same thing with some WebSocket stuff. Um, you know, I don't have any really big applications out yet with it, but the, the, the very limited sort of stuff I'm doing with Core Async um, and the WebSockets is like working great, right? It's just like, okay, I'm gonna wire this up and then all this kind of stuff I can write once and put in this one library or namespace or whatever. And then in my application, it's just one line to open up a channel and, and start writing back and forth on it. 
uh, and having stuff just kind of work out, which has been really nice. Cool. So initial signs are good. That's always encouraging. Yeah. Um, and so, so I mean, let's segue a little bit because uh, we we just mentioned uh, applications. You you ha- were very uh, conspicuous in one particular application uh, that you have written recently, which is your uh, your weather app. Uh, the, mm. uh, the, the I, I wonder if you could talk about that a little bit. Oh yeah. So you're, you're talking about uh, the Weathertron. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So so this is um this is an iOS application that uh, was done primarily by me and uh, Ryan Lucas, who is a designer here and um yeah that was that was really just a kind of a a side project for fun that we did you know we we'd seen all this stuff um and it's like hey let's see how far we can push um you know ClojureScript and AngularJS um and and build a really good experience um on on the iPhone because I think a lot of people you know so so almost all the work I do is on on the web um and a lot of people have been kind of saying like it's possible to make web apps for the phone, uh, but a lot of people say like those are sort of inherently subpar and it's not a native app and people can tell and all this stuff. And you know, my I mean, you know, part of me is just contrarian. So part of us part of me is just like, okay, well like let's let's actually take them on on this and see if we can do a web app for the phone that's like actually really awesome. Um, I mean another thing I think is a selection bias, right? So you can tell when there's an app that some developer put together in like five hours mm-hmm. uh, with on the web stack. And so it doesn't feel like a native app and it's all slow and sluggish and stuff. But uh, there's just like a big selection bias there because you don't see when you get an app, like you still, you can't tell, right? Unless you, you know, open up the, the package or whatever um, that it might actually be a web app. So, you know, I kind of had suspicion, like maybe there are people out there who are doing it really well and you, know, you just never hear about that on Hacker News because no one knows it's a web app. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, we just we just sat down and being able to do stuff on the web is, is just really nice because at least for us, it's, it's what we know and the workflow is so much faster to be able to do like 80, 90% of the UI design work and prototyping in a browser, like on a desktop, um, or even just using the, the browser like on Safari, you know, on, on the device um, and just being able to play around with styling and have it auto reload and auto refresh. Um, it's you get much faster iteration than if you have to actually build a whole package and install it on the device and things like that. Um, so so that that worked out really well. I mean, I, I was I was um, I don't know, maybe I, I was a little surprised. I mean, on on one hand, we we did work very hard to make it fast and things like that. Um, but when we ended up releasing it, you know, it was just great because I mean, one because most of the work that we do is not public facing. And so it was very nice to like build something that was used by more than like 20 engineers at some company internally. Sure. Um, but you know, we just got a lot of resp- like really positive response on Twitter when it came out, and then uh, I ended up writing a blog post about sort of the architecture and stuff in there. And it was equally great to hear a lot of people being like, "Wait, what? This is a web app? Like what? Um, you know, which is really really what you want, right? Like you don't want people. I mean. You know, I, I like technology, and it's fun thinking about technology. But ultimately, you know, really, what we want to make is like a great product, and the technology required to do that is pretty tangential. Um, and so it was nice that it wasn't something people thought about. Like the people who used it, they're like, "Oh, this is like a really great app. It's like really nice," you know. Um, and it wasn't like, "Oh, this is slow or sluggish or why or you know what's underneath the hood." Like people just used it, and it was great. Um, and it was it was fun approaching it from that. You know, from that standpoint, I mean, the main the main reason we wanted like we wanted to kind of test out the tech stuff building this app, but the other thing was just sort of going back to the data visual visualization aspect. Like, there's, I mean, to me, it seems like there's still so much low hanging fruit, right? You would think someone would have made a weather app. Like, there's a whole category on the store of weather apps, and you know, like they're almost all the same, right? It's all just like a table of like numbers. Um, and maybe there's like some high resolution video of like raindrops hitting a windowsill or something, <laughs> but that's like it. And it's just like, guys, there's like all this data here and, you know, it'd be really nice to actually have a visual overview of stuff. So, um, for the, for those guys, like the, what, what the weather trend looks like, it's actually just pretty much a single screen, um, that just shows you your day and it's just like a two charts, right? So there's like a, with time going along the, um, the X axis. So, it's just a day from from midnight to midnight, and you can see just like the rainfall amounts as like a bar chart on the top, and then each each hour, and then you have like a, a temperature graph on the bottom, 
And then there's like a little slider so that you can drag and look at a particular hour um, really quickly and just see like the conditions and the exact temperature and the exact rainfall amounts and stuff like that. Um, but, you know, it's just a really simple visual overview. I mean, it's not, you know, I mean, it, lo it looks nice, but from a data visualization standpoint, right, it's very simple and to the point. And we just designed it like, you know, what are the questions, again, sort of going back to and trying to build interfaces to help people solve problems. It's like, what do you want out of a weather app? And for us, we were like, let's just make something that you just turn it on and it shows up immediately and you can just get a very quick overview of your day. Um, you know, that's all we wanted. And so that's why there's no, no fancy tables or like 17 different windows or side, you know, fancy scrolling or anything like that. Like just very quickly solving this problem, like get in and get out. Um, and so, and you know, I, th I think it's, it's worked out pretty well, but again, it still, it still blows my mind that there really wasn't a lot out there like that. You know, everyone's like, oh, this is so innovative and revolutionary. You know, and it's like, guys, this is like a bar chart and a line chart about the weather. <laughs> like, why did it take, uh, like, this iPhone has been out for like five years or whatever. Like, how come we're the first guys to do this decently? Um, it's kind of nuts. Well, I think I think uh, you might be underselling your perspective a little bit because, uh, you know, having seen some of the work that you've done, uh, particularly WeatherTron, uh, you gave a talk at ClosureCon that I think was very well received. Um, I think... As with a lot of people who are really good at something, uh, the, the, the tenants become obvious to them. They're not so much. I think it might just be a literacy thing. But anyway, people can certainly go and see it at uh, theweathertron.com. I took a look. You guys have a really nice uh, video that kind of shows off the app. People can see exactly what you're talking about uh, uh, there. But it is, it, is, it is a cool little app. And, and the more so, um, like I know you said that it's nice that the technology disappears into the background. And I agree. It's, that is, I, I think your emphasis on that is spot on. I mean, that's what you want. But at the same time, for the engineers in the audience, um, it would be really interesting to me, at least, to drill down a little bit on how you guys built it, because you did build it using some of my favorite technologies. And uh, yeah. to talk a little bit about how you pulled that off. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so let me remember to try to get the numbers right. I mean, I think it's the app itself is roughly, I want to say it's roughly like 2000 lines of ClojureScript. Um, and it's, it's a web app, and we're actually building on top of uh, AngularJS, which is a, a JavaScript framework. Um, and, you know, I kind of looked around at, at all the stuff out there in, in terms of frameworks, both in, in the few in ClojureScript and then the gazillion and a half in JavaScript. And AngularJS is very interesting for a couple reasons. It's by this guy, uh, Mishko Hevri, uh, who used to, he used to have this testability blog at Google, which is how I knew him. But... Um, the Angular itself is very well designed. Like, so you go on their website, and it's nice because there's actually like design level documentation on their website. Which to me, like when I see that on an open source project, like it immediately catapults it to like the top five percent. Right. That it's like someone's sat down with like OmniGraphical and like thought about you know how these things should fit together. And it's a really you know pretty cool testament to Angular itself that you know it works so great with ClojureScript, right? Because they they certainly. They, probably barely even know about ClojureScript if they know about it at all. So it wasn't something that it was designed to be able to do, but just the interfaces that it gives you, like everything with Angular is just plain JavaScript objects and JavaScript functions and stuff. And uh, so because of that, it's very easy to interact with it from ClojureScript. And what the code actually looks like is, you know, it some of it actually feels a little weird or a little schizophrenic, um, but because ClojureScript is so malleable in terms of being built on top of uh, protocols, you actually just teach ClojureScript about JavaScript. Um, so you can extend like, uh, you know, the iLookup protocol to a JavaScript object. And then you can use like keywords, you can use like get in and things like that, um, just directly with, with to manipulate JavaScript objects. Um, and so that's really what the app looks like. I mean, in, in a way it's using ClojureScript in, in kind of this weird way as, as like a, a really super, super nice coffee script because I'm, I'm not using as much of the you know, persistent data structures, because I'm, I'm just throwing around and, and kind of banging on mutable JavaScript objects. But the syntax is so much nicer, and the fact that you get, you know, all the namespace stuff is still very handy. Um, and it's kind of interesting to, to kind of merge those two worlds. And I'm not, you know, I'm not com completely convinced that that's like the best way to go, but for this particular application, it, it worked out really well. Um, I'm trying to think if there are other, other aspects of the design that have been helpful. I mean, and just have, I, I already talked a little earlier about, you know, just in general, being able to do stuff with the web stack is, is very nice. Um, you know, and again, I, 
I haven't done really large apps um, with the native framework, like with Objective-C and, and Xcode and all this stuff. So my perspective is a little one-sided on this, but it's just that, like, you know, I already know all this stuff about the web, you know, and Ryan already knows how to style and design all this stuff using the web tooling and the fact that we can do so much of that, um, you know, on desktop computers or, um, you know, when we did test, so the app is totally responsive. So, you know, we actually had a couple days where we would just sit down and he'd have his laptop and we'd have like an iPhone, an iPod touch, an iPad, an iPad mini, you know, all these different sizes and all of them are wired up to the same web server, you know, and we make one change in like the CSS and then all the devices like refresh and then you see like a new screen on all of them. Uh, and being able to do stuff like that relatively easily, you know, using web technologies has been really helpful because it lets you iterate on the design much faster. Um, it's, it's been pretty cool. That is super cool. Did you guys use, so this is, a, I mean, this is an app. Like it's in the store and everything. So yeah. did you use PhoneGap to go from? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So we used, uh, I guess, uh, PhoneGap. I think it's, it's called uh, Apache Cordova now. Right, right, right. But yeah, it's basically just, it's like just enough native code that um, opens up like an HTML page with JavaScript and CSS and makes it like a full screen browser view. And that's also how you, you hook into some of the native functionality. So this is actually kind of funny because there's about as much code, like native code, that I had to write as closure code because there's only like 2,000 lines of closure script for the whole app. Um, and you know, there's like seven or 800 lines of Objective C I had to write just to like take a screenshot and like share it on Twitter. Um, <laughs> so it's, it's just like feels pretty silly, you know, to, to have to do stuff like that. But all of that kind of happens through this this uh, Cordova shim, um, which exposes the native stuff. So would you do it, if you had it to do again, would you would you choose the same tools? Um, yeah, I mean, for the most part, I definitely, I mean, I definitely have no interest in doing um, sort of Objective-C or, or writing low-level Java stuff to, to work natively with these things. I mean, I think the web stack is really nice. Uh, we actually have a, a client right now who's in the renewable energy sector, and we're doing a big project with them on Android stuff because they want their field technicians to have like live dashboards and displays of, um, you know, kind of what's going on at the different facilities and stuff like that. So that's going to be a big, big Android project. But, you know, again, uh, most of it is going to be on the web stack. Um, in terms of things that I would change, I mean, I'm still very much up in the air about using AngularJS and ClojureScript in this way. Uh, it, it's a, it's a, little, a little silly. So if I didn't know about ClojureScript, I would be like, oh, like AngularJS and CopyScript is like the best thing ever. And I would be totally happy with it. But because, you know, I've, I've kind of seen a light on some of the closure script stuff with functional programming and persistent data structures and stuff like that, uh, I'm, I'm kind of perpetually unhappy with the state of things now. Where it, just, it just feels too weird for me, um, kind of like banging on your JavaScript object in place and having like a dirty checking loop and, you know, having this kind of stuff. But at the same time, I'm not exactly sure what um, a more functional kind of UI paradigm would look like. So that's something I've, I've been thinking a lot about lately, uh, but I don't have any concrete um, kind of next steps for, for something better than, than what we built the, the WeatherTron with. Have you, uh, and I know it, it doesn't uh, currently address the, the UI aspects, and I'm not familiar with Angular, but I suspect that um, there are things that Angular does that uh, Pedestal doesn't, but have you, have you looked at Pedestal? Yeah, I, I was super jazzed about it when it, um, I heard uh, it was coming out at Closure West, and um, you know I, I saw the talk there about it, and, and looked at some of the documentation, but I haven't been able to totally wrap my head around the, the client side parts of it. So I mean, the server stuff, we're like split, splitting up, um, you know, the request and response handlers in Ring to be like interceptors or whatever. That that makes sense and seems like a pretty good idea. Um, but for the the client stuff, um, you know, the the tutorial is actually it's a little daunting for me. It, it seems pretty huge, and there's so many like new concepts, and I'm not sure kind of how they all fit together. So, um, occasionally I'll, I'll pop over to the page and be like, I should really like dive into this because I know like you know all, all these people who are working on it are really bright. Um, but then I, I, I sort of uh, I open up this tutorial page and then get a little distracted because there's there's so much going on. So I'm, I'm actually hoping uh, I don't know. I really want a, a to do MVC example actually with with pedestal. I don't know if that's out there yet. I feel like I've bugged Brenton about this in the past, but that's sort of the uh, the lingua franca. Um, Rosetta Stone application for client-side apps. So right. I feel like maybe if I saw one of those, uh, that, that would be enough to push me over and check it out. But I, I haven't looked at it extensively. Yeah, I'm in the same boat, actually, which is uh, 
have have not spent as much time with it as I know I would need to in order to absorb the concepts because I think you're far from alone in that you walk up to it and, and it's not it's a big delta from other stuff that uh, one has worked with before and so you know there's a learning curve to climb and uh, I know that the the guys that are working on it are are uh, have have are aware that that is the case and have some thoughts about how to correct that but of course uh, you know everything takes time and so yeah yeah totally um, no and there's like so, I mean so much there and it's very clear they've been thinking hard about these problems um, but for me it's just it's kind of hard to get my bearings I mean I don't know what what's there now but one thing that I, I always like on open source projects is when they're the maintainers are very explicit about similar things in the space and then how their thing uh, differs from it, right? So whenever I have a project, I usually, I mean, I, I don't know if it sounds weird. I, I don't really like, I'm, I'm not trying to make all these open source projects. Like really I'm trying to make like cool products, mm. do cool stuff. Um, and then inevitably what happens is I'm, I'm too like persnickety or picky or whatever. And I look at the things that are available and, and you know, none of them, do X, Y, and Z or whatever, something that I think that I need. And that's usually what prompts me to go and, and build something else. Uh, but when I do build something else, I always try and make sure that, you know, in the readme, it's like, okay, this is like X, Y, and Z, but it doesn't have A, B, and C. And these are like the differences from it. Um, and I find, I find that very helpful in terms of just like getting a bearing because usually like people are getting into some space, like if people are getting into client side UI development, like they've probably looked at a lot of stuff and so it's nice to be able to like, oh, this is kind of like Angular, but it doesn't have this problem that Angular has, and it's kind of like this, but it doesn't have this problem that it has, or, or whatever. Um, and it also, you know, kind of shows you that whoever made this thing uh, kind of did their homework, right? Because there, there are a lot of projects that are, um, you know, someone. It's hard. It's hard to tell if how many of them are like serious engineering projects and how many of them are like, oh, I did this for fun on a weekend, <laughs> right? Um, and like when you're trying to do something that you're taking very seriously, you, you need to vet stuff and be like, did this person actually do his or her homework? And like, why did they make this thing? Because if they just made it for fun in like two hours, I probably don't want to use it. But if they spent, you know, if it's clear to me they spent days and days and days or weeks and months like thinking about the problem and investigating alternatives, and then they still made it, like it's probably really good. Right. You know? um, so. Yeah, I agree. I mean, I, I've uh, recently put out a, I mean, a month ago, whatever not too long ago, I put out a little library for working with sound in Clojure called DIN, and I've been hacking on that um, primarily because I really want to get to the point where I can use it to produce this podcast. <laughs> um, but uh, I, one of the things I said in the README um, is, hey, I intentionally did not look at Overtone when I did this because I was afraid that if I did, um, I would see that Overtone already does it and does it better and that would rob me of the motivation to hack on this thing that I'm doing for fun. <laughs> and so if you look at this and you go, I think Overtone might do this, you're probably right and you should go use Overtone. I was uh, that's right in the readme. Yeah. No, you should tell, you know, I'm not saying people shouldn't shouldn't goof off on Saturdays or whatever and, or like, you know, have a couple beers and like crank out a library, but it's nice when you do do that to make it explicit, you know, and just be like these are the problems I'm solving or not solving, you know, these are things I thought about or didn't think about. Do, now, do you find it at all difficult to navigate um, the difference between what you're talking about, which I think is is great? Like, here are the here are the trade-offs that are inherent in these different approaches to the solution. And if you're optimizing for this, you might choose this, and if you're optimizing for that, you might choose that. Which is very objective, and I think great information for people to have. And is is it hard to navigate between that and the perception of um, this thing, this other thing is terrible and my thing is awesome, right? And which I know is not at all what you're saying, but I think there is a danger in, in coming out and doing any kind of a comparison where it, it can come across as not invented here syndrome um, or whatever. No, I, mean, I think it's something to think about, but I think like if, if you, if you actually have done your homework and if you've thought long enough about the problem you're trying to solve, then you're going to be aware of trade-offs and downsides of whatever approach you end up choosing, right? Because if you think you have some approach that's going to solve everything, you're probably wrong. <laughs> right. Um, and so, you, you know, you, you should be totally fine with that too, right? So I think in, so I have a, a library called uh, C2, which is for doing uh, data visualization stuff on the web. And it's very much inspired by this library called D3. And in the library, in, in like the readme, I'm very explicit. It's like, 
look, these are the issues that I had with D3. You know, some of it's like, I just want to use ClojureScript, you know, um, but other ones, you know, there's some more technical issues in there. But there's also parts where I'm like, C2 does not do animation. Like D3 has all this great stuff for animation, and I'm not interested in that, and so I'm just not going to do it. Like, it's not going to be in here, out of scope, like, whatever. Um, or, you know, these are things that are hard to do with C2 that are much easier to do with D3, you know, where you're going to get a lot more examples and support and documentation from D3 just because the community is, like, way better. Um, and I, I think, you know, if you're building a library, it's, you, you, if you've thought long and hard enough about your problem, it's not going to be hard for you to, like, trash your own stuff. And you should do that, you know. Uh, I mean, not, not trash it, but, right, just, like, saying these are the things that it doesn't do well. Right. Um, and I made this decision because for my use case, it doesn't matter. Right. Um, you know, I really like what, um, oh, what is his name? Uh, Kyle Kingsbury has done with all the database stuff. And it, in a way, it's actually kind of funny. So we had this project, I think it's called like Jeff Jeffson or something like that, um, where he just gets all of the like hipster databases and he just runs like tests and benchmarks on them like in a consistent way where he's like, how do they behave under network partition? Or like what happens when, you know, the, this ser these servers go down? You know, he just does all these tests. And it's just funny because whenever he has a new post on it, it all always goes to, straight to the top of Hacker News and everyone's like, this is amazing. Like, this is so incredible. And I, I always just think that's like really funny because it's like, how can you guys call yourselves engineers and be amazed by this, right? This should be like your day to day. Like you should be, you know, evaluating things before you use them and actually thinking about them and not just like reading the uh, two paragraphs above the API documentation that's like, this is the best thing since sliced bread and then taking it at face value. Yeah. Um, so, I, you know, I, I think what, what he's doing is super useful and I, I would love to see more of that, that kind of stuff. Um, or even just, you know, like I really like, one of my favorite things about the Clojure community is that there are a lot of people in there who um, come from different backgrounds and have a lot of perspective and, uh, you know, kind of seem to take the time, many of them seem to take the time to step back and think about things. And I, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, if you can sit down and write about a problem, uh, it's almost certainly more useful than coding. I mean, I find more and more now that I spend less and less time writing code and more and more time just like banging my head against like a blank uh, markdown document trying to figure out what I'm actually trying to do and what are the different approaches and things like that. But I think it's really helpful to do that. It is for me anyway. No, it's totally for me too. And in fact, this gets to somewhat to a question that I really wanted to ask you and um, that I actually uh, want to ask a, a lot of our guests uh, because of, uh, I think a lot of them share uh, a feature, which is that they seem to be able to get a lot of things done. And, and that touches a little bit on it. I mean, what's, you mentioned writing things down, but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about your, your process. I mean, you're a guy that has been able to produce a lot of things that work well. I mean, you mentioned C2. We've talked about your libraries for working with ZeroMQ and WebSockets. You built this weather app. You know, you've got you've got a bunch of irons in the fire. So what? I mean, what is your? How do you structure your day or approach your work such that it enables you to do those things? Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I don't really have any uh, any crazy life hacks or anything, Craig. Um, <laughs> no, I mean, well. My, my, my one life hack is at the beginning of the week, I, I usually sit down and have a cup of coffee and think about what I want to get done that week. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, sometimes I do that on a day level as well. It's like, what do I want to get done today? And then I just have like a little index card. It's like, okay, you know, a to-do list, right, as they say. Um, but, I mean, for, for the most part, I, I just try and, I try and uh, keep an eye on what's going on. You know, I've actually been kind of amazed. So I, I very didn't get into any of the social media stuff for a long time. And I still don't have like Facebook or anything like that. But I, di I did get on Twitter um, because I, I kind of went on this conference bender last year and spoke at a lot of conferences and then people kept asking me about it. And so I finally just like parked my name on Twitter. Um, but it's grown on me quite a bit because, you know, like be, being self-employed, um, you know, I don't get a chance. Like, so, so I'm a little jealous, right? Because I imagine for the people who are not remote, who work at like relevance, like you can actually be around the water cooler with some really effing smart people. And uh, it's, it's been nice to get into Twitter because it's uh, similar to that, where you know, I can follow some people um, and just keep track of, of really cool stuff that's going on. You know, so a lot of people like if you just follow like David Nolan and Fogus and stuff like that, they're always like, oh yeah, here's this paper from like 1973 about this problem that is still relevant. And you're like, this is awesome, right? So I, I just try and keep up with that stuff and, and have an idea of what people are thinking about what's going on and then always just try and be making stuff, right? I, I always 
try and have an end goal, like something that I can actually ship. And uh, nice code usually falls out of that. I don't, I don't spend as much time worrying about, well, I mean, it, it's like a, a double-sided thing, really, I guess, because at the end of the day, I really want to ship stuff. And so, you know, there's definitely some code in the Weathertron that's like, oh, this is pretty gnarly, guys. Like, this is, this is not the best. But at the same time, I'd rather kind of have that in something that's out in the world than uh, still be stuck at square one, you know, reading papers all day long but never shipping anything. Um, if that, if that makes sense. No, it makes total sense. I, I mean, you're very casual about offering this advice, but I think, uh, you know, if I could summarize slightly, it's, you know, uh, build things and hang out with smart people. And the build things is fairly easy for somebody to do, but I never thought of uh, Twitter before as a way to hang out with smart people, but that absolutely makes sense. And and uh, we all know, I think we've all experienced that when you, like for me, I played hockey in, uh, in college. And when I, when I would play... Um, down from my level, I would get worse. And when I would play up, I would get oh, yeah. better, you know? Yeah, totally. I mean, I feel like all the, any, any really nice features and libraries that I've done has almost always been just like obvious extensions of really good ideas that smarter people have had, right? And so it, it helps, I think, in, in a lot of the closure stuff, there are just so many smart people and then people just talk about certain ideas and you just think about it for like two minutes and you're like, okay, well, I think what they mean is that in this particular instance, maybe I should try this, you know, and then you have a library. Right. Um, yeah, it's, it's funny, though. The closure IRC is, is really good, too, in, in terms of getting this stuff, because you can go in there and, and ask a question about something. Um, but I also, I also think it's kind of funny, because sometimes I go in there with a very uh, concrete question about, like, oh, I'm making this web app, and I need to query, you know, some data or whatever. And then that the flip side of people having all this background experience and exposure is that sometimes it can be a little, um, a little glib. And so it'll just be like, oh, yeah, you should just do it with core logic. And right. you're like, I have no idea what you mean. Like, can I have like a gist or something? Do you have like a, an example? And this is why like I love, every, every, a lot of people have been talking about um, the functional reactive programming and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And uh, I, I sort of joke that it's, it's just like MVC in that it's just like three letters that no one really knows what it means. Right. And uh, so a lot of people in Closure IRC are like, oh, I can't believe you're using, you know, whatever, like MVC, you should really use FRP. And then I'll just be like, send me your to-do list app, and then I'll take a look at it. But if you can't show me some working code, I don't, you know, you gotta draw a line somewhere. It's good to think about crazy ideas, but it's also good to ship. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, we could probably look back at our conversation here and identify at least three places where, uh, if you stood back far enough, what you're basically saying is you gotta find the right balance, right? Yeah. Between making things and studying, between working code and ideas, and, and yeah. 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 Well, wow, this has been a fascinating conversation. Um, I don't want to take up a lot more of your time, but I do want to make sure that if there's anything else that we ought to talk about before we go, that we do cover that. So uh, what else should we talk about? Um, oh, I do have uh, – uh, there, there was a side project that we worked on um, over the summer, too, that will probably be out by the time this podcast airs, which is uh, – so this is like the, the obligatory product placement. Oh, yeah, uh, no, no, go ahead, please. In, in the podcast. Yeah, yeah, no, please do. But uh, so, so we made this thing called the DevOp, which is uh, DevOps for one. And it was actually, we, I didn't go into it wanting to make a product, but basically you, you have like, at least I had like this long list of things that I knew I wasn't doing that I was supposed to do, right? So like, how do you manage all of your SSH keys between a bunch of different machines? Or like, how do you have like encrypted volumes for things? Or how do you deploy applications, you know, with the AWS credentials in them without checking them in the Git? And all, all these kind of things where you're like, oh yeah, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but like, I also don't know how you're actually supposed to do it right. And if you ever try and sit down and do it, like you always put that off because it is quickly gonna be like, oh yeah, I should back up my software. So I'll just like search for what's out there. And then there's like five open source things. And then suddenly you're like installing like a new version of Ruby. And then, you know, you never actually, like then your like weekend is gone, right? So I actually spent a lot of time looking around for something like this and um, couldn't find anything. And so I ended up, um, we decided to just like put together a little like guidebook kind of for like all these things that people know they should be doing or developers know they should be doing but like never get around to. Um, so that's actually what's been taking up a lot of my time in the past like two weeks is like getting that stuff out the door. And it's really nice to have everything in working order as well. Um, you know, with all my signed, signed libraries and, and like, you know, encrypted key pairs and all this stuff. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's kind of boring, but it's, uh, it's been handy to have done. Okay. So this is a, a service or a product or? Oh no. Yeah. That's the thing. It's like, it's it's very old old hat, so it's it's very not uh, it's not some software as a service or whatever. It's just like 
you pay us, we give you this like book, and we're like, okay, here are a bunch of guides. It's all tested on, you know, the latest like Debian stable and like Ubuntu long term, and just works. We have hosted copies of everything that you need. You know, you're not gonna have to worry about you know third party servers going down or whatever, losing track of the wrong version of softwares and stuff. And the idea, right, is that you you just kind of sit down, you like pour yourself a whiskey, and you're like, okay, I'm gonna like just clean up and like tidy up all this stuff over two hours and it's going to be like time bounded. Right. Cause I think the problem, at least for me right now is that it's not time bounded. You're like, you want to go in there and then you, you start yak shaving to the nth degree. <laughs> right. Um, and it's like, you know, I don't, I don't trust any of these hacker news startups or whatever where they're like, it's like $3 and we'll do it all for you. And it's like, I'm not going to pay you $3 and give you access to all my servers. Like, so that you can nebulously take care of something. Like I'd rather just, you know, do it myself. Yeah, um, but without having to like you know research all of it. Oh no, there are definitely times when when what I want is for someone to explain the big concept so I can take care of it myself. And there are other times when I want is to find the guy that knows how to do it or the girl that knows how to do it and say, "Tell me what to do." Right, right. Yeah, that's. I mean, that's all I wanted too. You know, I think it's uh, developers. It's funny. It's, there's this sort of you know, people have a very hard time paying for stuff, it seems like. And I, I think I maybe have a, a different perspective since I run a business as well. Um, but there's definitely, you know, there's a value to your time and time that you spend, like, trying to compile some open source software to, like, take care of some small problem is, like, time that you're not spending somewhere else. And so, you know, it's funny. So I use uh, Harvest, which is, like, a time tracking software. Mm-hmm. You know, and I, it's, like, I pay them, like, 150, 200 bucks a year to like do what I could basically do with like an Excel spreadsheet in a Dropbox, right, which is track time. Um, but I'm happy to pay them that because it's, you know, they have a little web interface and you know, I can just get it done. And so I w- was hoping there would be something like that too for this space. Um, but I, I did a lot of Googling and then gave up and then had to just like do it myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll see, we'll see how that works out. But that's something that, you know, people may be interested in. Um, in, in terms of other stuff, Oh, well, there's, there's a whole, we'll probably have to save it for another conversation, but um, there's a lot of stuff about content-based addressing I've been thinking of lately um, that I'm, I'm very interested in and kind of interested to see where, where it goes out as people, people seem to be rediscovering some, some good ideas from, you know, uh, back in the day about that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I think you're right. I think that does uh, sound like a big enough topic that we might want to save it for another <laughs> time. So uh, will, you, will you come back on the show, Kevin, and talk to us again? I, I, would, I would love to come back on the show, Craig. That would be great. Um, cool. Well, this has been a really fun conversation, and I knew it would be. Um, you know, I've heard you speak. I've spoken to you in person a few times, and just looking at the things you've done, it's very obvious that you've got uh, a lot of good insight, and uh, that was certainly borne out today. Um, yeah, man, it sounds like we covered everything that we can fit into one show, and I'm looking forward to, to talking some more. But before we uh, bid you adieu, uh, I would like to ask you the second most important question. Uh, which is, uh, what's our outro song? Oh, um, how about We Are Never Getting Back Together by Miss Taylor Swift? Oh my goodness, I hope that's not some sort of foreshadowing for not doing another no, episode. No, don't, don't, read, don't read into it. Don't read into it. <laughs> okay, cool. Uh, that's certainly the first Taylor Swift song we had on the show, but I am, I'm, I am always pleased to play whatever our guests select, so that's awesome. Um, well, Kevin, thanks a ton for coming on the show. It's been great to talk to you. Yeah, no, it's great, Craig. Yeah, I mean, I really appreciate it. And I, and I genuinely do want to have you back um, because uh, content-based addressing and then, of course, anything else that you will work on between now and then, which I'm sure will be something interesting, would be uh, would be great to, to have that conversation. Now, are you going to be at any of Strange Loop or the Conj anytime soon? I'm, uh, I'm, I'm taking off conferences this year. So I, I went to uh, like a dozen or so. I spoke at like a dozen last year. And uh, I was like, okay, I had too much speaking. I need to just like hunker down and actually do some useful work for okay. a while. But I will, uh, I'll get back on the circuit next year, I think. It's awesome. a lot of fun conferences. Well, cool. I'm looking forward to running into you at one of those then. Um, well, so thanks again for coming on the show. It's been it's been great to have you. Really appreciate your time. And uh, well, that will, I think that will draw our conversation to a close uh, for this time. Uh, I will just close by saying to everybody, thanks for listening. You have been listening to The Cognicast. The Cognicast is a production of Cognitech, Inc. You can find us on the web at Cognitech.com or on Twitter at Cognitech. Our guest today was Kevin Lina on Twitter at Lina K, L-Y-N-A-G-H-K. The Cognicast is produced with help from Alex Miller, Alex War, Damian Mack, Jamie Kite, Justin Getlin, Kelly Ross, Luke Vanderhart, Lynn Grogan, Mark Phillips, Russ Olson, Sam Umbach, and Stuart Sierra. 
Episode cover art is by Michael Parento. I'm your host, Craig Andera. Thanks for listening. Like ever. No!